Hello everyone and a warm welcome back to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast and a special hello to anyone that maybe is joining us for the first time. I'm really looking forward to chatting with, I'm going to call them two old friends today. And what I mean by that, each of these um, guests today have been on the Shared Ireland podcast before. Um, one is an ex-British soldier and I know he's fed up people introducing him as that. And the other is a professor in human rights in Queen's University. It gives me and the Shared Iron team great pleasure to welcome back Professor Colin Harvey and Glenn Bradley. How are you doing, Colin? Thank you very much. Delighted to be here again. So. And Glenn, how are you? Thanks very much. Yep, good to be back for uh, another time. Another interrogation, Glenn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that the wrong word to be using to an expert no, soldier? No, 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 no. The wrong word to probably be using in front of Colin, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Although I guess if I'm going to be interrogated, no better man to have beside me <laughs> from a justice point of view. <laughs> yes, very good. Oh, by the way, I want to have you, Glenn, a belated happy birthday. I believe you were uh, 35 yesterday. Absolutely, 35, yeah. <laughs> 35 plus 20. Yeah, yeah all the fives. Glenn, um, for the benefit of our new listeners, Mm-hmm. So, and thankfully, we've got listeners now from all over the world um, tuning in every week. Tell us a wee bit who Glenn Bradley is and a little bit about your background, please. Uh, Glenn Bradley was born in Answorth Drive, 32 Answorth Drive, uh, which is in the Loyalist Woodville area of West Belfast. So, it's on the West Belfast side. I grew up um, just where I was born before the onset of the Troubles and as the civil uprising uh, happened around us, basically the community that I lived endured Republican armed aggression on a daily basis. And I grew up, as most children in the area did, counting bombs, counting gunfire, messing around at the, what became the peace line as it, it, that army barricade became a solidified wall. And safe to state that by the age of 16, I wanted to hit back at the Provost. I could have very easily joined 1st Battalion of the UVF. Um, people in my area encouraged me to join the British Army. And as a 16, naive 16-year-old, 16 who was of very serious sectarian thinking, I joined the British Army to get the best training possible and come back and take the war to the IRA. The British Army obviously had different intentions for me and I was sent on operations not to Northern Ireland but to other theatres in the world. I did come back here in later dates and I did 10 years in the Army coming out in 1994. Um, in 1994 it was obviously the emerging peace process. I come from a political active family um, and I joined the Ulster Unionist Party. And in the Ulster Unionist Party, I became a party officer. I was in uh, first the Ulster Young Unionist Council. Then I became West Belfast constituency chairman. And at the time of the talks, um, I was heavily involved in, in, in that uh, behind the scenes stuff um, in briefings, keeping West Belfast briefed and, and so on and so forth, Loyalist West Belfast. Um, personal trauma, uh, my wife was diagnosed, my then wife was diagnosed with uh, terminal breast cancer. Took me away from politics and public life by about 1999 and I entirely focused in, in business where I became a successful businessman. Um, I then became obviously a single parent 
life evolved. I met um, my, my second wife, Jo, thankfully in 2003. We married in 2009. Um, we've been together since and it's great. Um, I'm now a grandfather. So yeah, I've been around a couple of corners and I'm a, a person because of business who believes that business is people and people are business. And, and that's how I've always conducted the majority of my adult life after the army. And I have got built, rightly or wrongly, a reputation for being um, someone who, if I say I'll do something, I'll, I'll do it. Um, I've also led a good life, I believe, in trying to address uh, modern slavery, uh, human rights abuses and labour rights abuses within corporate supply chains. And as well as, as doing what I've done in my day-to-day -day business life, I have I've built a reputation where I'm, I'm recognised as a, a human rights activist, rightly or wrongly. And that brings me to where I am today. Um, I'm winding down, I'm in the twilight years of my working life, and I see myself working for a major manufacturer and down in your <coughs> old turf down near Dungallon, down in the island, where I seem to get a scoop of chips with everything that I want to eat now. <laughs> It's a stable there. <laughs> so that's that's my a life summary, I suppose. Well, Glenn, uh, all I, I can say to that, and I'm sure I will be thinking the same as our listeners, I can't wait for the book and, <laughs> and um, the, the Netflix series. <laughs> I, need, I need to retire first. <laughs> so there you go, Professor Colin, top that. I, I, I really can't top that. I look forward to reading Glenn's memoirs. Uh, yeah. I suppose, in a sense, I've, I've done this these podcasts before and I've sort of said a bit about my background and really ultimately today just really want to get into to talking through what the issues are but I suppose no just I briefly from, because say we have got new yeah. listeners all the time yeah, and, absolutely and not. a wee bit about yeah. yourself and I know you're a modest man you yeah. don't like talking about yourself <laughs> but <laughs> it's just because I'm a very boring man no not at <laughs> well, all, that's a, not at all. Um, my background from Derry um, born in 1970 in Derry so grew up in Derry in the 70s and uh, 80s and very much you know in a sense as Glenna says or lived through those uh, times during the conflict I went to university in England in the, the late 80s and really I was in England and Wales before returning to uh, the north in the, the, the late 90s at a brief spell again in Leeds in the noughties and then I've been in Belfast since since when 2005 and which is about 15 odd years, uh, really have gone down a really academic route, really, in terms of my my work and life. You know, did a law degree, but did a PhD, really, because, you know, I've seen what solicitors do, and I thought, actually, I want to do the academic side of things. But increasingly, and throughout my life, really, I've done human rights activism as well, Range work with a range of organisations, actually, across these islands to, pr to promote... Uh, hu human rights and equality and I think ultimately it was Glenn said there about human rights activism you know increasingly think this is the case that human rights the clues in the title are there for everyone you know and sometimes like many people here slightly frustrated about the way that the debate uh, g goes here I you know I'm not a sort of academic who sits in libraries and ponders deep thoughts I also have been very active in the wider debates and in a sense Make no apologies for that. Lovely. Thank you, um, Professor Colin. Glenn, just um, 
starting off the conversation, I suppose, with yourself. Mm-hmm. And we'll work our way into this in different areas of, of both your lives. But in your opinion, Glenn, why are we having these types of conversations? And why do you believe they're important in the context of our constitutional future on this island? I, well, conversations are things that happen every day. And conversations for pe- for, between people of countless faiths, of, between people of countless ethnicity, race, whatever, are, are daily life occurrences across this world. And, and this notion that because Colin is from Derry, from a Catholic background, as an academic involved in human rights, means that he and I couldn't have a, a conversation. It's just another lunacy, putting it lightly. Why do I believe it's important? I believe it's important because as someone who was there when the Good Friday Agreement was negotiated and then agreed or balloted on and and, and endorsed by the people of Ireland, that parity of of esteem is the foundation stone of the Good Friday Agreement or one of the foundation stones of the, the Good Friday Agreement. I'm an unapologetic peace processor. I'm a role model, I hope, for certainly my family, my grandchildren, my children. And it would be utterly um, abhorrent of me to say all those things and not practice what I actually believe. Mm -hmm. So conversations like we're having today, A, as I said, they're normal. They happen every day Mm -hmm. across the world. But importantly for here, I, I absolutely believe in parity of esteem and in order for parity of esteem to take place, we need to have conversations, no matter how uncomfortable some of those conversations will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I echo that. I'm, I'm sure so does uh, Colin. Yeah. Colin, you are a committee member yeah. of Ireland's Future. Yeah. Tell our listeners, Colin, who Ireland's Future is and what are their aims and objectives? Well, Ireland's Future is it's probably fair to say the leading civic society organisation working Absolutely. on preparing the ground for a constitutional change here. But it's among a number of such organisations and obviously this podcast series is part of a, of a larger discussion. We just don't have the budget. <laughs> As a, well, I suppose it's, it's trying to do something that, that I think is probably relatively novel in the civil society space, mm. which is take a very clear position on the constitutional question but prepare the ground Mm -hmm. uh, as a civic organization to do that and I think what's been interesting about the work is that Ireland's future like everyone else has put a lot of emphasis on you know there's not going to be a border poll tomorrow and there's not going to be a border poll next week but it's provided for in the Good Friday Agreement that's the framework for it Um, and that we need to plan and prepare responsibly and sensibly for that. It's been really striking actually in the last number of years that for all the caricatures of everyone here that a lot of the language around it has been the language of you know sensible preparation for something that's already agreed and anticipated and might be coming next. The big central recommendation of Ireland's future is around an all-island citizens assembly to discuss uh, these options. Um, Ireland's Future is organising a range of events across the island of Ireland. In fact, as we're doing this, I'm conscious that there's an event in Dublin tomorrow, for example, uh, an Ireland's Future event, and there'll be other ones 
as across the next uh, 12 months or so. For, for me, that's, yeah. that's a very impressive thing about Ireland's future is that they have literally went to all four corners of the of the island. Yeah. So, you know, that everybody has an opportunity yeah. to get involved in the conversation. Yeah. And I guess even coming from our own platform here in Shared yeah. Ireland, yeah. I know Ireland's future and other groups have been yeah. saying, we are encouraging everybody to join this conversation yeah. because ultimately it's our future, yeah. our children and our grandchildren's yeah. future. Yeah. So, you know, I guess yeah. that's the key. Yeah. Tell me this, just yeah. what, what I'm sure you're delighted to see people yeah. like Trevor yeah. or um, London, Reverend Cairn yeah. getting involved yeah. that wouldn't traditionally come from yeah. maybe, I know you don't like putting labels on people, yeah. but like, a, yeah. you know, a nationalist yeah. background. Yeah. Yeah. It's very refreshing to see these people. Um, absolutely, and I think the, the, the invitation to join the discussion has to be an open and warm invitation, which people can take up, and which they don't have to take up either. You know, I, I'm very conscious that there are people within unionism, particularly political unionism, who quite understandably would think, well, I don't want to be involved in a discussion that involves designing United Ireland. But <laughs> I think there's more and more people, particularly post-Brexit, who have an appetite for this discussion, but are also thinking in different terms about... Mm -hmm. The conversation as well you know irish unity is now a discussion about returning to the european union it's you know it's a more pluralist conversation i think than maybe it was in the past mm -hmm. to create space for people to to join <coughs> that discussion but i think ultimately ireland's future and everybody else is saying the door is open for people to, to walk in i think people will be taken aback by the i genuinely think that there's the warmth of the welcome Mm -hmm. for coming into the space mm -hmm. understand why people might not want to but if people do join the conversation they'll be very very warmly welcomed but there's also another element to this which something i've been thinking about a lot recently there's just the hard work involved in getting this right this is going to be forever if you like mm -hmm. so it's important that the hard work is done in advance mm -hmm. and you know a lot of organizations have stressed that you need to do the heavy lifting first mm -hmm. it's no good repeating brexit no so get that right get the island prepared, invite people to join that discussion, be clear about what it is you're proposing mm -hmm. and make sure people are involved in that process of designing those plans. But yeah, absolutely, everyone is welcome to the discussion. They don't have to be in the room for the discussion, but they're warmly welcome. Mm -hmm. And it's you know it's great to see Karen and Trevor and other people, and Glenn and others all involved in this discussion, you know, can do no harm. Glenn, you yourself back in February took part in an Ireland's Future mm -hmm. event and the title of that particular event was A New Ireland, A Warm House for All. Um, in this event, participants mainly came from a PUL background. Would that be fair, um, Glenn? Yep, yep. I have a couple of questions for you here. How did you find the event, I suppose, any takeaway moments? And B, is the conversation in broadening, do you feel, um, I found the event inclusive, um, open in, in the style of the engagement and the conversation that we had. Mm -hmm. It's broadening in the context that some of the issues and concerns that if a border poll was happening tomorrow, I would want to see addressed were discussed openly in a calm and professional mm -hmm. manner for want of a description. Mm -hmm. And I thought that... The, the event itself, particularly with Andrea Chernet, was was well, seriously well chaired, and it brought out the the the, the salient points that we needed to, to to discuss and and get out, you know, and and that's what needs to happen, you know, 
conversations, I go back to what I say, conversations amongst people of all faiths, all creeds, all races happen on a daily basis. Why there is this notion that a group of people cannot get together to discuss, and I, I emphasize that, discuss how they would see a new constitution in this island working. Um, why that alarms people, I, I honestly don't know. Um, you know, and, and as Colin has, has, has said, the, the Good Friday Agreement allows for a border poll. The Good Friday Agreement allows for peaceful and a, a peaceful process to bring about democratic change on this island. And the only people who can do that is the people of Northern Ireland. Now, I know through Ireland's future and I know through meeting other members of the Irish Nationalists, their Irish Republican community, that they are constantly lobbying, or, or how could you put it, promoting, desiring, seeking of that. I see no one from my old community, the unionist community, who is voicing or lobbying or promoting the benefits of, of the union. Absolutely no one. I think that's a very interesting point, and it's one that people are increasingly referencing that, Glenn. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't want a united Ireland, a new Ireland, well then, let's hear your vision for the Union for the next 100 years. Because mm -hmm. we've already lived it for the last 100 years. Um, wasn't, I think it's fair to say, it didn't represent all citizens equally. Don't think there's any argument with that. So, you know, let's paint a picture for us people that, you know, would want to see the union, um, want to see it, um, basically, um, the door closed on it. Let, you know, paint a picture so that we can maybe turn around and say, okay, fair enough, I see your point there, that wouldn't be bad. Because this is a conversation, as, as I think everybody around this table says, that nobody can walk away from it. And I'm going to quote young Joel Keyes, who had, we, we had in the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Joe says... Like, you know, what's wrong for loyalist unionists to go in and have a conversation? And if they don't like what they hear, ultimately they can still walk away. But Correct. it costs nothing to go into the room. Correct. You know, and, and like, you know, I'll be honest, I nearly fell off my chair when I heard Joe say that. Mm. But it was so refreshing to hear him say it. Colin, since we last spoke, uh, the UK has gotten Brexit done, basically. Um, can you give me your assessment of where we find ourselves now? Very simple question, isn't it? You know, <laughs> we find ourselves in a very, very difficult position. We are watching a, a, a British government that is being entirely reckless with the well-being of this region and the people who live here that's putting its own narrow ideology around the sort of Brexit it's chosen above the interests of people here for all the rhetoric about uh, Northern Ireland. I don't think it's putting people's interests here first. And I think we're in a very worrying situation where ultimately you have this odd scenario where the British government, in my view, is deliberately destabilizing this region for its own Brexit here ends. And people here, I think, unfortunately, some people are falling for that. Uh, and I think that's unwise. I think we're heading into, you know, we're already in new territory in that, you know, we've had Brexit. So one bit of the island's in the EU, one bit's out. 
you know, with two governments face each other in a very different scenario. And that's, you know, in the context of the peace process, that's unprecedented. Um, you've got a British government that's playing fast and loose with this place. It's playing fast and loose with its own constitution. Like, mm. Let's be honest in terms of what we've seen in the last yeah. few weeks. So some really scandalous, shocking behaviour. So it seems to me that that should be focusing minds here on taking ownership of some of these debates uh, of where the future of this island really does rest and to try and maintain a sort of calm, responsible response to all that. Um, you know, you don't want to be playing in the hands of people who are deliberately destabilizing this place for their own ends. Obviously, I can't speak for political unionism or use out it, but there is an argument that we're being used as pawns of other people's, you know, agendas, and I think it's silly really to 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 fall for that. You know, if you really believe in putting people first here, then focus on people here and what they actually want, and some of the evidence that's emerging around that in terms of the protocol, the advantages of the protocol, making best use of, of what we've got, you know, I think needs the priority of people here. But I think it's a very, very disturbing time. You know, we're sitting having this conversation on the brink of, you know, by the time this podcast goes out, mm -hmm. they may well have gone down the line of invoking Article 16. And we, be, we may be back to all those debates of 2017 about the border on the island of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And I think what that'll do is it will quite rightly put the reunification question right front and center of the political debate again quite rightly in my view because you know I, f I have to say i find it bizarre to turn on the radio and the tv and read the newspaper and hear endless discussion of the protocol when in april 2017 the eu said here's a door back mm -hmm. to the European Union, mm -hmm. you know, full return to the European Union automatically, a route that's in the Good Friday Agreement, and nobody here wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. No, you won't hear. You'll turn on your TV and hear endless discussions about the mm -hmm. protocol, mm -hmm. um, and that worries me. And the reason it worries me is what is impeding people from taking that step. You know, what's going on in our society that makes people step back and say, "I know it in my mind." So privately, right? You speak to people privately and they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we should really. But they won't say it out loud. And that, that's what worries me about here. I think I think it's interesting, Colin, when you mentioned automatic re-entry yeah. back into the EU. And yeah. the EU's come out and yeah. clearly said that. Yeah. And if, if we look at, you know, Scotland, which is also looking at independence, yeah. and hopefully soon they will have ended ref too. Yeah. And I personally believe it'll be one yeah. the next time around. But the, the Scotland didn't even get that reassurance yeah. from the EU. But we have, yeah. So, like, as, yeah. as you say, like, yeah. wow. And it, to me, it is just um, whatever your view on constitutional questions uh, and all of that, it is bizarre, but telling. It's telling here that still in 2021, 23 years after the Good Friday Agreement, the clear constitutional compromise that that reflects, people are still anxious about heading into that territory. Uh, whether that's in the mainstream media conversations or anything else. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the more we have conversations like this to probe that and explain why that is, the better. But at the moment, particularly where we're sitting having this conversation, um, where you have a very, very obvious, 
and there are many. This is a pro-Remain region. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> there are people here. P- park Irish reunification. There are probably mm-hmm. people here who would like a vote to return to the EU. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the context of some of that, who look at Boris and Co. and are absolutely horrified by what they see and think there's another way forward. So that's a big shift in the conversation about unity too. Mm-hmm. You know, the advocates of unity need to reflect on. You know, this is about rejoining an essentially transnational entity, mm-hmm. about a pluralist European conversation of putting the unity argument within a broader European mm-hmm. roof in the context of a Brexiteer scenario that could be going who knows where, but yeah. not a place that most people here want to go to, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Glenn, as a businessman with many years of working in the private sector, a couple of wee points. Is the NI protocol a good thing? And what do you see as the pros and cons? Okay, before I would answer that, I would just like to elaborate on what Colin said about mm-hmm. the Tory government, because to me, they are utterly sleazy and corrupt, and they are damaging the United Kingdom as someone from a unionist background. They are doing untold damage to the union, totally. There's no doubt about that. They're sleazy, they're corrupt, and Boris Johnson could well be the last Prime Minister of, of the current United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I say that quite confidently with how they're going and, and what's going on. But coming back to your question, um, the Northern Ireland Protocol works for the vast majority of business in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. It is protecting business and our economy from the, the wider supply chain difficulties that you're seeing outroll in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fuel mm-hmm. shortages, t- 12,000 containers stuck on quays and Felix stoves and port congestion, material shortages, labour shortages. And, and while we are experiencing those, we're not experiencing them to the, the seriousness of what's happening over in, in Britain. So yes, it is working. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. It really isn't. Um, you know, there, there's duty being demanded on cargo that is coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland because the process is flawed. Mm-hmm. So does it need looked at and do those processes need ironed out? Mm-hmm. 100% they do. But that's something that can, that's an easy fix. Mm-hmm. You know, that is... Businesses coordinating with HMRC, it's businesses through their trade bodies and professional bodies getting representation to both the EU and uh, Her Majesty's Government in London and, and outlining what, what needs to happen. And I'm quite confident that all that is happening and that these flaws in it can be ironed out. Uh, but there just needs to be the space to do that. And, and what I think is happening is that ERG Brexiteer members, some of them encouraged and enamoured by elements of political unionism, are, as as Colin said, riding roughshod over the desires of the majority of people here and and, and just trying to to do something or or bring about something that just isn't there. They're trying to create a, a full battle. They're having full outrage about something that the majority of people here aren't obsessed about. And, but yes, to answer the two questions, yes, it is protecting business. Yes, it is protecting, or sorry, it's protecting the majority of business. 
It's protecting our economy, certainly, definitely. Um, is there flaws in it? Yes. Can they be ironed out? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. Just coming back to you, Professor Collin. With Brexit, have we now moved beyond it impacting on trade to it now potentially being about rights and even possibly the diminishing of rights with the European Court of Justice, um, ECJ, now under the microscope in the latest negotiations? It's a great, great question. You know, one of the things that has occurred in terms of the protocol is I'm not sure there's a great awareness of what's actually in the protocol in its entirety. Mm. One of the neglected aspects of it is there's an Article 2 provision in the protocol, which is a protection around rights and equality. And while the discussion is focused primarily on trade, understandably, that's been really quite worryingly neglected in the public debate. There are protections there in the protocol around people's rights. And as people will be aware, the current government in London seems to be intent on removing people's rights. So those protections are important. They need to be part of the discussion around the protocol itself. You know, one of the things about the Good Friday Agreement is that it held out a vision about human rights and equality in this society. And the starting point for us was really the European Convention on Human Rights and giving that effect here. And we have that in a sense through the Human Rights Act. But for people here, that was really our, I have to get this right, whether it's the floor or the ceiling, but that was a floor of our protections. But you've got the Tory government now essentially talking about potentially, you know, overhauling the Human Rights Act. Uh, so why we had a vision here of going much further than the Human Rights Act, of having a Bill of Rights that's never happened, of more uh, robust guarantees, we seem to have gone backwards. And even the basic, you know, floor of protections is under threat. Your question gets at, ultimately, I've always said, from looking back over stuff from 2016, Brexit is part of a bigger agenda. Right? The Brexiteers know what they're doing. They have a vision of the future. They look at places in the world that you and I might not like in terms of their vision, and they think that's the way they want to go. And it's a vision of a radically deregulated society. They're antipathetic to rights and equality issues. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that you know, it involves a wider sort of attack assault on, on, on the sort of equality and rights-based vision that's in the agreement. And they want to diverge and go in that way. But I don't think that's what the majority of people here actually want mm. and where they want to mm -hmm. go. So I think people are faced with, with a choice. I suppose a stark choice at the moment is to, to hone it in on, on our arrangements is the assembly and the executive seems to be a major blockage for equality and rights. So people have often found themselves having to go back to Westminster again mm. to try and get equality and rights guaranteed. So it's a big test for the assembly and executive. They're not giving effect to the sort of vision of equality and rights that people here want to see. They're watching what's happening in London. So it does raise the question, you know, does the constitutional change discussion become the vehicle for leveraging that bigger conversation? You know, are we more likely to have a more meaningful discussion about a Bill of Rights, enhanced quality guarantees in, as part of that larger constitutional conversation? I think many people are beginning to think, actually, that's right. Whatever, whatever you think about uh, some of those questions, that we're only going to have a meaningful discussion about that in the context now of the discussion that's happening around constitutional change. Like the executive has become, like, let's be honest, the executive has become a major blockage mm -hmm. 
to achieving the sort of society that most people here want. So what are we going to do? A major blockage. Yeah. Well, look, how many things are now stuck in in our institutions that haven't been advanced? How many promises haven't been fulfilled? And we did with Ulster University and the Human Rights Consortium polling from earlier this year, asking people about the sorts of things they want to see and on bread and butter issues around housing and healthcare and basic socioeconomic rights, people across all communities here want change. So you've got that desire for change and you've got the institution standing as an impediment to that. So something about that has to give. It's wonderful the way you put it, stand as an impediment. No, but they are. I mean, let's face it, there, there, there is individuals and there's a particular political party and they are subverting, and I'll use that, British rights in Northern Ireland. They are completely subverting rights that are freely given, valued and enjoyed in society across Britain. And they are subverting them for the people of Northern Ireland. Our citizens are being denied equality with Britain. And yet that's in one vein. Why, why, why does our five-party executive not do something about it? Or can they do anything about it? I honestly, I don't know the inner machinations of, of, of government here to, 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 to comment on, on the exact reason why. If you're asking me as a punter, mm. why do I believe it? Mm. <laughs> I believe that oh, there. I, I believe. Scratch beneath the surface a bit, Liam. <laughs> I believe that there is simply people who wallow in a moral supremacist attitude, and they enjoy provo- provocation of other people's minority communities, uh, our LGBTQ community wider are citizens and they take delight in lording it over people you know and it goes back to that you know rights are not there to be given Mm. and these people want to live in a world where they're the givers where they're the entitled where they're the privileged people who can bestow upon we the lower classes the minions of northern ireland the the citizens and and I believe it is that supremacist mentality, and it isn't. You know, it, it it exists outside political unionism. If we go into uh, women's rights and uh, so on and so forth, but it's I believe it's a supremacist mentality. I was going to ask you not don't hold back, Glenn, but I, I should have known. No call to qualify it. Glenn, I'm going to stick with you for okay. a wee second, if you don't mind. Again, referencing your business and private sector background, a couple of wee points. Have the UK government acted in bad faith throughout the Brexit negotiations? And where does this leave their international reputation? For example, speaking as your business head on here, could you see a business act like this and, I suppose, not have its reputation tarnished? You know, if it was a business as opposed to a government. Um, the, the, the UK government, the Tory party, let, mm. let's face it, this is who we're talking about here. Uh, as I said earlier, they're sleazy and they're corrupt. <laughs> the whole Brexit process has not been about improving the well-being of the United Kingdom. It's about improving the well-being of certain profiteers. And every, how could you put it, um, hurdle 
that we have seen but since the referendum result of 2016 or even we want to go before that the deceits and the lies that we now know that we're told mm-hmm. in the build-up to the referendum and the hurdles that have had to be jumped so you've you know you've now the kingdom government on one side and you've got 27 other nations on another side mm-hmm. and they it has been an utter farce what has gone on do i believe it's damaging britain's reputation absolutely absolutely but it's damaging britain's reputation with countries who want to behave in an ethical way mm-hmm. Other countries who don't behave, as Colin alluded to earlier, other countries where rights aren't practiced yeah. are watching this and going, we could do trade with these guys. Mm-hmm. One about your Saudi Arabia is, yes, mm-hmm. let's open our doors, let's get the arms dealers in here, let's do trade with Britain. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, women will suffer mm-hmm. rights abuses and other human rights abuses will, will, will occur. So Britain, as, as Colin alluded to, there is a... A certain element within that Brexiteer elite who have this vision of their future uh, Reich in Britain and England. Because let's face it, it is English as well. I mean, uh, you know, again, look at the Tory party. I think there's 16 Tories outside England. 16 Tory MPs outside of England. Mm-hmm. The first past the post system that works for over there. It doesn't, you know, it's, we are dealing with a Tory government drunk on English nationalism. Mm-hmm. And I believe history will look on this period time and go nuts, bananas, sleazy, corrupt, Fuhrer rallies, whatever the hell you want to call it. But we are in a, a, a time where you have a, a government that has broken all parameters or moral parameters, moral codes, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And yes, they want to trade, but they don't want to trade with ethical countries. They're looking to lower standards. Mm-hmm. They're looking to have us it's just not about well-being yeah it is absolutely not about the well-being of the citizens of the country mm-hmm. it is about the well-being of a certain elite profiteering community the rich getting richer and yeah. yeah yeah very interesting very very interesting ass- um, assessment yeah. professor Colin, give me your assessment of the current dublin government and I suppose what I'm really referring to here is <laughs> why are you laughing already, Tom? <laughs> Even I'm laughing. <laughs> are, there, <laughs> are there any positive signs that they are willing to take the constitutional question to the next level? Well, I, th- I think there are a, a number of, of, of things there. Obviously, there is the current outworkings of Brexit and I think the Irish government has been this one and the previous one as well Mm. has been trying to work out what the best approach to that was so the previous one in a sense was copper fastening and getting really the interest of the island of Ireland at the heart of the negotiations and I have to say in terms of the previous government and the work that Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney did in ensuring that the interests of this island were front and centre in those negotiations. Mm-hmm. They were 
they've successfully negotiated you know the protocol and all the work that went into that in terms of the current government obviously they've established a shared island unit and they've made commitments around that project including a number of funding initiatives and other things and i think my own view on that people are have different views about that but i think that if, if 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 language brings people into a room to have a conversation about how we do things better in the here and now that's fine by me to to be to be candid because you know people are good at the moment at talking the talk about all island cooperation but we're actually rubbish at it now you know the island isn't joined up properly now you know anybody who's tried to travel the length and breadth of the island on public transport you know it's it's not great you know so if we can improve the here and now that's fine but to me it's part of the same project that ultimately Irish reunification is about how we share the island in the future so they're not separate conversations a united Ireland will be a different way in the future of sharing the island and I suppose I'm a bit concerned that the current government seems to be excessively shy about going there even then we know we know that civic and political unionism knows rightly that that's what the conversation is so nobody you know nobody doesn't know what we're talking about but I think the current government particularly Micheál Martin I think could be much more upfront and proactive about what is a core part of the Good Friday Agreement it's in the Irish constitution you know uh, his own party is supposed to be politically committed to this outcome so and I think people almost now find it odd that that space is, isn't being filled but I think the key point for me is that the shared island language isn't just about making sure we're working better now it's about preparing sensibly for the future so I think you know they're doing some work they could do a lot more and I think at the moment particularly why they haven't established uh, a citizens assembly why they haven't got specific ministerial responsibility planning for this because you know you, you know yourself the job of a government is to do the management the planning for the future so they need to just get on with it because I think we're all fed up now with everybody agreeing about planning and preparing without people stepping into that space so you know they're doing okay, but they could do a lot more and they could be a lot more upfront and open about this. However, just as a, I have a habit of doing and a final <laughs> point, but you know, it's been notable to watch Leo Bradcar and Simon Coveney, Simon Harris, Neil Richmond, you know, all beginning to move into this space, you know, of actually saying, no, no, it's okay to have the conversation. Jim O'Callaghan. Yeah, Jim, you know, Jim O'Callaghan's paper and, you know, it, It'd be interesting to see when that transition happens from Miho Martin to Leo Varadka car next year, you know, as to what, you know, that might shift. So I detect a bit of a change, but I suppose ultimately assessment would be could do better. Well, you took the words out of my mouth. You're a professor, yeah. Queen's University. Mark them out of time for me. <laughs> no, I'm not going to mark them out of ahead. Time. What, six? Could do better. I'm, I'm giving forward-facing feedback, so <laughs> it's constructive. You know? Very good. good to, so I'll give them six or seven out of ten. Okay. okay, that's good enough. Um, Glenn, in your previous conversation with us in the Shared Iron podcast that you had with Danny Morrison, you spoke about veterans' pensions and veterans living in the Republic. Mm-hmm. In 2019, there were over 110,000 British people living in the Republic. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you think 
that can be learned from their lived experience that ultimately would help ease the concerns that people in the North might have about their identity living in a united Ireland. Quite um y- y- Yes and no. Right. And, and the reason I'll say yes and no is, yes, any conversation that informs is, is good. No, in the sense that they are born into the 26 county Republic of Ireland. And if we're going to bring about constitutional change in this island, it isn't about Northern Ireland bolting I mean, into that twenty, or vice versa. Or vice versa. So, so it's about the creation of something that is entirely new, that has never been done before. Mm-hmm. And while we will take the best parts out of Northern Ireland, we will take the best parts out of the Republic of Ireland, mm-hmm. and we'll basically do away with the crap. And that's me talking as a layman. The, the, the reason why I framed it in that way is because that I have constantly gotten this from unionists that I speak to mm-hmm. on the podcast on a weekly, monthly basis, is that they've got this fear of the bogeyman in the South. And obviously you're quite right. It's certainly not my vision. Um, the Constitution will have to be ripped up. The blank page start again. Mm-hmm. bits from countries around the world. But it's a question that I always be asked, like the bogeyman... A lot of people haven't even travelled well, into yeah. the 26 well, countries. No, I mean, I mean, I, I mean you know? you, we're talking, I mean, uh, God rest his soul, he's deceased now, but my former commanding officer, probably one of the former greatest commanding officers I ever had in the, the army, was Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Cargan. And Johnny Cargan was a, a Cork man, did his time in the army, did his full term, um, left and retired and lived in Cork until his death, which was about uh, six years ago. And, you know, he would be the prime example that would come to mind. But, you know, there's British legions throughout the, the South. The, I know many former army, British army veterans who live in, in the present Republic of Ireland. And they do so quite freely, without any duress, and enjoy their, their lives and their well-being in the current uh, constitutional state that is the Republic of Ireland. And... As you know, in my former uh, uh, role in, in business, I would have worked. I mean, probably two-thirds of what I would have done would have been down in the, in the Republic of Ireland. So mm-hmm. if you're walking about Waterford or you're walking about Cork, you're walking on a uh, paving stone that I would have manufactured and made. And, you know, certainly as, as a northerner, as a former uh, soldier, I have never had a problem in the south of Ireland either doing business or engaging with people or, or anything else now how do we get others to understand that mm-hmm. we inform them because it's about the eradication of ignorance mm-hmm. it goes back to what I've said in the previous you know it is about busting these myths it's mm-hmm. about rising above propaganda yeah. and it's about seeing things for what for what it is and and that can only come about through what we're doing now having informed discussions about well, what would it be like? What what could it be like? What exists now? How can we improve in that? How can we make it better? And that's why I think what 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 the Ireland's future team are doing is is so important because it's saying the status quo of the United Kingdom has failed. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the status quo of the Republic of Ireland has failed people in Northern Ireland. Therefore. Let's look at what could be something utterly new, you know, and, and, and I'm on record, you know, that this, this Tory government has cro- made me cross a Rubicon. You know, I, I look at what's going on in, in Britain and I just don't 
want to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of that corrupt sleaze anymore. I'm going to stick with you, Glenn, but mm -hmm. this is a question for you both, okay? If you were tasked by the Southern Government to develop a roadmap to Irish unity, mm -hmm. what would you include in it? And alternatively, if you were asked by the Westminster Government to develop a plan to retain the Union, what would you include in it? Now, take as long as you want, go where you want with this, and I'm just going to sit back and... Uh... The, the, the last one is, is easier to answer. Right. Because if it was to do with the United Kingdom, it would be about equality. Mm -hmm. give, us, give us equality. Give us balanced equality and, 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 and equitable equality. And I guess... So, you know, because the big thing with what Brexit did to me as someone from the unionist community... Oh, it's four small countries, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and we make up the United Kingdom. But yet the overpowering numbers of the English electorate basically give two fingers to Scotland and Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. It was not about equal partnership. It was not about four equal countries in the kingdom. It was about English superiority. What do I ask? And that was the first thing in Brexit that utterly made me go, whoa. This so so if if it was about what are the next hundred years of the union going to look like? Yeah, it's got to be a liberal society embracing equitable equality, um, and where the well-being of the citizens of here is put right. And what I mean by that, if Colin wants to be Irish and only Irish, that is wholly respected and is given parity of esteem. And what Colin desires to seek out of that. If I want to be only British, that's, that's respected. If I want to consider myself British and Irish, or be a UK passport holder and an Irish passport holder, those rights are respected. So, so the latter one is easier for me as someone coming from the unionist community to answer. Because I think the biggest damage that is done by political unionism locally is the denial of rights. This supremacist mentality about putting people down who do not fit in with their version of, of I don't know, I was, going to, I was going to say their version of Britishness, but it's not even a version of Britishness because, you know, it's, it's this version of what it is, is the kingdom because Brexit completely tore it to shreds because we are not an equal partner. We are not an equal country. We are not considered one quarter of the United Kingdom. And Brexit proved that. What would I like to see if we were reshaping for a constitution that would be all Ireland? You get a phone call from Michael Martin tomorrow morning. Glenn, there you go. Well, his, res his resignation would probably be first <laughs> if it was me dealing with it. But there you go. Um, no, um, it has to be... A transparent engagement that is about, as, as I said, alluded to earlier, where we take the best of what mm. is up here and we take the best of what is down there and we bring it together to, 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 to and it, it becomes about the terms that I've already used in the, in when we were talking about the link with Britain. It has to be about equitable, equitable equality. Mm -hmm. It has to be about improving the well-being of citizens. And by that, I mean all our citizens this eradication of a very very rich and then a very very poor and very few people in between mm -hmm. i'm on about a more broad-based mm -hmm. economy and notion to that 
It has to be about, you know, healthcare. It has to be about those provisions that, that people fear down there. You know, if I think back to my granda's time, you know, my granda, trade unionist, um, worked all his days in McLattery Brickworks and then Parkview Brickworks was a, was a trade union uh, shop steward. Yet he would have still talked to me as a boy and talked about down south, papish. We can't be part of that. Mm-hmm. But that that fear still exists within some people because obviously some people have grown up on, on the knee hearing about this. Uh-huh. But again, it's one of those myths that needs to be broken. Mm-hmm. So I think the big thing about it is dialogue, engagement, talk, conversations, uncomfortable conversations, and getting it all down on paper. And to me, that can only come about, not through the politicians talking, but as Colin's already spoken about earlier, it can only come about through a citizens' assembly. Mm -hmm. There has to be a transition period. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about who's going to fund it initially. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there may be a need, certainly in the, the short term, for Stormont, to continue to function, would storm it become maybe the provincial government of Ulster mm-hmm. when we, we get our three counties back? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but but nobody knows, and that's the point. and that's have the, the conversation. Yeah, have the be be unafraid mm. to have the conversation, and in that conversation, speak forthrightly about what you desired, because ultimately, and and I, and I I sincerely mean this. I believe if we look at the history of Britain and and, and other countries that. Um, it occupied and where it, it had implanted people and where those people grew up to be Anglified and so on. They 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 were true. Like that. I mean, if we look at India, you know, they, they were out within two years. Mm-hmm. And they did not care what the repercussions were afterwards. Mm-hmm. And and I despite the, the short distance um of the Irish Sea, they don't see us as the same. We're all Irishmen to them, or women, and they they will abuse that the moment it doesn't suit them. And they've been telling us since 1991 that there's no economic or street strategic or selfish interest in here. What more do they need to tell us for people within unionism to start realizing, you know, we need to embrace our neighbours. We need to talk to our neighbours. We need to start a conversation because, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but if I was in a marriage where, where my wife had said to me, you know what, I've no selfish, strategic or economic interest in you anymore. I wouldn't be choosing to hang around much longer. And it's, you know, so I don't know many times an English man needs to tell me that before I go, you know what, big lad, you're right. And, uh, you have a lovely way of simplifying everything, Glenn. Uh, Professor Colin, I know you kind of, in your previous answer, kind of did answer a little portion yeah. of that. But I would genuinely love to hear you try to answer if Boris phoned you and um, <laughs> build me a roadmap, Colin, for um, keeping the union, um, keeping the North in the union. Thank you very much for that question in terms of the first thing I, I would say to Boris is it shouldn't be a roadmap, funnily enough. I think because one of the things that we face is that we need a pathway forward, whatever direction people uh, go in. 
and there's too many roads already. And I think and not one, enough trains. One of the things we need is better public uh, transport, yeah. public infrastructure generally, in in this region. I have to say, you know, it's it's a very hard sell. I think in terms of where uh, Boris. Uh, is coming from but what he's doing I think first of all would be to advise him not to continue and behaving in the way he's currently behaving I think ultimately if you're going to maintain any uh, state or any union you have to treat people with respect you have to show that you're listening to the voices of all parts of the state in which uh, you happen to be governing and Boris and his Brexiteer friends have treated the people throughout the UK during the Brexit process, particularly the two constituent parts that voted against Brexit, with complete and total contempt. You know, he's facing a situation where two parts of the state have voted to remain in the European Union, but as Glenn has said, English nationalism is basically trashing the Union. Mm -hmm. So ultimately that's what's happening. So listening to people, respecting the constituent parts, agreeing that if they want to leave, they can leave. Mm -hmm. If they would like a referendum to go, that they can go. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, stop doing what is doing, I think would probably mm -hmm. be the best advice. I suspect many people listening to this <laughs> probably want to hear uh, things about the pathway to the future of this island. I suspect many people <laughs> listening to us now are just simply nodding their head in agreement. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think that, um, you know, Boris and the current government has shown how not to go forward if you want to maintain any type of harmonious state. You know, they've been making mistake after mistake after mistake. It's almost as if they seem to want the union to implode. To be yeah. candid, they've been doing everything possible to achieve uh, that outcome. You know, there's a lot of talk and a lot of people in Scotland were talking for many years about the development of a more pluralist and respectful UK. You know, and I think ultimately, if uh, this government, if London is going to try and hold the UK together for the next couple of decades, it needs to rapidly get back to thinking about a more pluralist, uh, horizontal relationship between the different constituent parts. The idea that people around the UK are going to listen to a command and control, finger-waving approach from London anymore is, is fantasy. You know, so uh, if you if you believe in Irish reunification, you might say, keep doing what you're doing, Boris. You know, but if you want to maintain the union, you know, you would be very, very worried about where he is currently going because, you know, ultimately English nationalism is going to be the death of the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Glenn, you were previously a constituency chair for the Ulster Unionist Party. Mm -hmm. How would you assess Doug Beattie's leadership up to this point? Well, I, I first must declare a, a bit of biasm here because Doug and I served together in the army and we were in the mess together. So... I must first say it. So I know Doug for a very, very long time. I know him as a an excellent uh, leader. Um, I've served alongside him when we were to see him rank, and I've served under him when he got made up from corporal to sergeant, and I was still a corporal. So, um, what can I say about Doug Beatty? He's a authentic leader who cares about the people of Northern Ireland and the people of Ireland. He's an Irishman. He has no hesitation in stating that. And like myself, he obviously has inherited a, a British culture and identity as, as he grew up. I think what he's doing or trying to do within the Ulster Unionist Party is commendable. 
Um, I believe it's the right thing to do. It's good in, in preparation. Including Glenn not giving a straight answer when he was asked, what do you take up the position of DFM if neither of the two unionist parties became force minister? I don't think he would be in that position. That I don't think that there will be any big swing vote. Um, that yeah, but so why not answer a question? Because he's a politician. And he's a politician in the limelight, uh, caught caught in headlights with a, a spot question. I think on reflection he may regret not answering that question. I'll be honest with you, I expected more from him. Okay. I didn't from Jeffrey and the DUP because, you know, you know what you're going to get. Dig your heels in, fair enough. But from Doug and his new brand mm-hmm. of um, unionism, it's on that basis that I expected more. Okay. All right. No, no, that's a that's a very fair point. Um, but Doug Beatty is about attracting people to Ulster unionism and is about remodeling and reshaping Ulster uni- unionism to be inclusive. Do I believe Doug's a Democrat and will he would he respect? Absolutely. I believe he's a Democrat as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but he needs to. Yeah, I, I believe that he needs to come out and say it. Okay. Fair enough. Um, Colin. Would you care to comment about the DUP blocking your appointment onto the Bill of Rights Committee? And I suppose the reason why I'm asking that is because I would have thought it pretty strange, given your years of expertise and on human rights, that it would have been you would have been number number one on the team sheet, for want of a better word. I, I suppose I, I bet. Better clarify to start with that, like everyone else, I'm just responding to what are essentially media reports. Yeah. Uh, and my name is is out there in the public, so yeah. You know, um, I'm just reacting to, to that. Uh, my name is out there. Uh, there's clearly a blockage in in the process. I suppose I'm just really saddened, really, to 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 hear that. If that's the case, it's de- deeply saddening for me as somebody who. I've worked my entire life in the area of human rights law. Um, you know, professor here in that area. I've served on the Human Rights Commission. I was involved in the commission with Monica Williams that submitted the advice in 2008. Um, I've been immersed in the Bill of Rights process since it was launched in March 2000. I would have really liked to have been able to have helped the Assembly Committee in an advisory capacity. So, But my ultimate emotion around this sort of is a bit tragic and sad. But I wouldn't personally place it in a sense I think it's part of a bigger problem and we alluded to this earlier that um, a lot of things are being blocked and a mm. lot of things aren't happening I suspect that if this if it is the case I'm not alone I suspect there are many people out there who can't speak who haven't spoken out that this has happened to um, and I also feel that it's representative of you know a blockage on human rights and equality here you know we're falling very very far behind and that blockage, you know, people talk about two problem parties and all that, but it's essentially, is it two problem parties in this context? It seems to be that there's one particular party here in the North, the DUP, that seems to have a particularly sharpened antipathy to the sort of equality and rights culture, not that Colin Harvey, I would, I would like to see, but that people here would like to see. All the evidence suggests 
the majority of people here, and actually most of the political parties here, would like to see us go in the sort of direction that the Scottish Government has gone in, in terms of equality and rights issues, of using regional power effectively to enhance people's rights. So I wouldn't, although it is personal, right? And it feels personal, it's been reported in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I try not to take things like that personally. It's part of a bigger issue in this society with a sort of, Glenn used the language around denial of rights and equality. Here, human rights don't belong to any of us individually, they belong to people in wider society. And at the minute, in recovery from COVID, in Brexit, there are marginal, I'm in a privileged position, right? I've, I've got a job here at Queen's for now, right? By the time this podcast goes out, maybe I won't, but I've still got a job here at Queen's. There are sort of marginalised, vulnerable people throughout the society who need these rights. But they need equality. They need basic socioeconomic rights to, count, to, mm -hmm. to get by in life. And that's who I feel for in this context. But what's annoying to me is we always focus on conflict and disagreement. And Glenn mm -hmm. will know this from the human rights world. See, when you speak to people across all communities here, they want these bread and butter, you know, housing rights, mm -hmm. healthcare rights. Healthcare comes up time and mm, time again. Course. They want these things guaranteed and written down in law. Mm -hmm. And it's a tragedy here that if one political party in particular is standing in the way of that, you know, that needs to change. And I suppose ultimately, your listeners here today, you know, it's there'll be elections next year. There'll be people have an opportunity to change things. So, you know, don't just complain about these things. You know, ultimately the old saying, you know, keep your eyes on the prize. Mm -hmm. You know, keep your focus on what the bigger picture and goal is and work towards that. And you know, get registered and vote next year would be my ultimate recommendation. And if you don't vote, don't complain. But also get, yeah, get involved in activism around, like Glenn, you've talked about the work that you've done in terms of business and human rights and other things, you know, being a human rights leader in the business world, of people can be active to try and change things. But so don't focus on the personal, focus on the bigger picture. Mm. There are people out here affected by all of this. Rights are being denied. And how do we overcome this? And ultimately, I suppose in our conversation, it raises bigger ticket. Can we keep going on like this? Like, yes, so we have an election next May. Right, so the election produces an outcome. Are we back in a year's time? Talking yeah. about rights being blocked again and again and again and again and again. So I mean, in the specific of Colin, yeah. and, and I met Colin professionally when I, when I was the chair of the... Northern Ireland Business and Human Rights Forum. So if I'm sitting with a pool of candidates and Colin's in there, you know, there's certainly locally nobody better in the field of, of, of what is being blocked mm -hmm. available from local uh, the local talent pool. Mm -hmm. So whoever is blocking this is not doing it because they have got questionable doubts about Colin's ability to yeah, affect or perform. Not. So we have to really get down. It comes back to this. Well, why is it being blocked? Yeah, yeah. Why is this happening? And it boils down to this, what I call the supremacist notion that they are entitled, that they are privileged, that they are appointed by some supernatural being to overlord us, whatever it may be. And I, I think that is what we need to call out regardless of where we're from in society and say that is wrong that is you know there is a man who is quite clearly qualified and experienced to do this why are you why are you not permitting this to happen 
And I think the more that society gets into doing that and challenging these people, we'll see that swing. Yes, elections are important, but I, I, my fear about elections is that there's increasing apathy out there and kids not participating in, in, in the electoral process. They've just given up. They just, and it really concerns me. Well, this is the first time I've ever done that, but in response to what you're now saying, Glenn Bradley, simply. Oh, right, okay. Okay, gents, we are uh, one hour, uh, seven minutes in. So you'll be glad to hear last-ish question. Yeah, okay. Question for both of you. Paint me your picture, Professor Colin, of an Ireland in 20 or 30 years' time. That's a good question. Uh, I think ultimately in 20 or 30 years' time, I, I, my sense will be we'll be in new constitutional arrangements on the island. Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll all be better off as a consequence of that. From my own perspective, I'd like to see those arrangements reflect a very strong and robust Bill of Rights mm -hmm. and a commitment to a culture of equality and human rights where people are, are valued and respected, where, you know, ultimately, like what's sad to me about the island now, north of south, is that there are children growing up uh, around this island now whose lives are being, or scripts for their lives are being written out by the postcode or where they happen to be born mm -hmm. and uh, that seemed to me to be a tragedy so I think you know an island of equal opportunities and equality where people have a real chance and are given a real chance particularly the most marginal and vulnerable people on the island matters to me like people use sort of New Ireland you know there's cliches better island New Ireland and they throw it into like, I'm involved in this stuff because I really mean it, you mm -hmm. know, and I encourage others who want to see, you know, real social change to get involved in these discussions. Because unless we change that script for people, it has to mean something to those children in the future. Yeah. They're growing up in poverty in the society. And so, but the other thing to keep in mind is that I was thinking about this the other day, whatever the arrangements we live in, it'll always be a work in progress. Yeah. We're, mm -hmm. ne we're never gonna of it's course. never gonna be utopia yeah like so we're, we're not gonna wake up in a reunified ireland and all the problems of the island of ireland are going to be resolved certainly not it's it, and that's important i think that's important right because people in the human mm -hmm. rights world talk about struggle and whatever human rights is is an endless conversation yeah. there'll be new issues that emerge there'll be fresh challenges it's a getting up every morning sort of it's a facing into it and it'll always be work in progress and so you know, when people talk about you and United Ireland, it's not going to be a big bang one-off event. It's going to have to be worked for. Mm -hmm. And if people believe in change, they're going to have to just keep working at it. It'll take a while. And it might not even be there at the time the island reunifies. Mm -hmm. It may be a work in progress thereafter. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately the reason people are involved in two things, Lee, is that we want the division on this island is not good. It's not good for the north, uh, and it's been not good for people who live here, and so they want that to, 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 to change. But ultimately, I think we'll all be better off socially, politically, economically, uh, in different constitutional arrangements. So I want to see a better Ireland. It won't be utopia. There'll be still hard challenges ahead. People are people. Human beings are human beings. There'll still be human beings in a united Ireland. So it'll be work in progress, but I think I'd like to see better place 
but ultimately a place where human rights and equality mean something in practice, not just in legal documents. Same question to you, Glenn Bradley. Paint me your picture. Um, well, I firstly hope that we're all here. Given the emerging climate crisis, mm. I hope that we're not sandbagging our streets and fighting floods. But beyond that, what do I want? I want a fiscally responsible government that is democratically elected and where the government works for the benefit, the well-being of the citizens of this island. And by that, I mean equitable equality. Mm -hmm. What would I like added in with that? I would love more shared spaces, more green ways. We talked earlier about our inf transport infrastructure. How beautiful it would be to get on a train in Belfast and travel to Cork. And then if I wanted to go on around the Galway and then up into Sligo and the Donegal and finish in Derry. You know, that's the type of things that interest me. What I would mm -hmm. love to do, I would love it to go down to the city centre, meet 30 years from <clears> now, <throat> now, Colin, and say, Mum will meet at the side of the city hall. And the city hall is a complete pedestrian zone, like around the arena in Verona. And we've got our cafe culture going, and we've got that, and we've got thriving local businesses mm -hmm. doing decent trade here for the people. But ultimately, what is it I want? I mean, what is my interest? I believe that... I believe the partition failed us. I believe that this Tory government is most definitely failing us. I believe that the Stormont government is nothing more than a bitch fest and an administration. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's delivering in its best capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so what is it I want out of it? I want a fiscally responsible government where the elected representatives are working for the well-being of all the people in an equal and equitable manner. Wow. Two excellent answers, man. An awful lot in an hour and 13 minutes for our listeners to digest there. And um, I could honestly um, sit and have this conversation with you for another hour and 13 minutes, but um, we will um, move on to the last part of the conversation. And I can see Professor Kong looking at me and giving me a dirty look already because he has asked me not to ask him any of these questions. <laughs> Sorry for writing you, Colin. Okay. But, as usual, I'm going to anyway. Okay. So I'm going to come to you first, um, Glenn, just to give Professor Colin a wee chance here. Okay. Um, what's your favourite pastime, Glenn? And how do you relax? Ooh. Um, my favourite pastime is cycling. Okay. Uh, I'm what we. I'm a member of the East Side Tootlers, which is a leisurely social cycling group who go out for breakfast each Sunday morning and meet up at other random times. So is the emphasis more on the breakfast or the cycling? It's more on the breakfast than on the social side of it. <laughs> okay. than, but we do. Like I mean, it depends where we go. Right. Uh, but we do miles sometimes. As, <laughs> I, as, I, as, I, as I'm getting older, it's becoming more about, well, we'll we just go into the city centre and have a cup of coffee or something. You know, so, so, But cycling is my... Cycling and hill walking are my big... Uh, de-stressors uh -huh. and, and beach walks obviously as well which I've talked about in the last one clocky Port Stewart Strand no yes. cases what was the other question what, oh, um, no just how do you relax read, 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 and, re and reading read, I'm a big reader mm -hmm. um, so I would have a big library at home and I would be a con and I'm old school mm -hmm. I still buy books mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
And you so, told me you told me off air that you, you have an interest in writing and stuff like that. Oh yeah, I've always been a creative. I've, I've always been into creative writing and expressing myself that way since mm-hmm. sixteen. I've maintained the journal. Like mm-hmm. my entries vary, but. It's always good to go back and read the eighteen or sixteen or twenty-one yeah. year old me, and you know, in my case, I and shake go, your head, shake my head, go, God, you were a dick. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Very good, uh, Patrick Connell. Um, same question to you: favorite pastime, and how do you relax in life? Um, or do you ever relax in life, oh, no, considering have, have the, to, yeah. the job that you do? Absolutely. I, I do a lot of running. I run a lot. That's right. And so running's a good part. Ever run past Glenn when he was eating his breakfast, <laughs> pretending to <laughs> no, do it for a cycle? <laughs> I haven't done, but uh, so I do that reading as well. But um, I suppose time with family is, as well is sort of what we got a, a pup labrador doodle there yes um, earlier in the year you know so mm-hmm. keeps you on your toes so that keeps things focused but i think also your family like keep, keeps you grounded to mm-hmm. some extent or whatever but um in terms of running i've done a lot of running in the last um 10 years or so and really recommend it actually it's like nothing you know takes you out of yourself as much mm-hmm. as just physical exercise so i would say that yeah you're not convincing yeah. me personally yeah. i'll stick to more like no, playing on the bike i think yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great i promise you there's the last so-called awkward yeah. question and i'm going to go to glenn first um glenn name me one item that you have in your fridge at all times <laughs> oh bottle of wine, bottle of wine. A, good, a decent pinot gris show or a decent um a decent sauvignon you know. Colin? Milk, really, because I'm a total coffee. Anybody who knows the best, the coffee place in Belfast was called Established in town. I think you know, so I often oh, bump into, the, but uh, but I take milk in my coffee. So okay. Milk so so and one answer was wine, and the other one was <laughs> milk. See, because <laughs> since I've been since 2019, see, I'm now on decaffeinated coffee, and I drink a black. So okay. <laughs> okay, guys, um, listen. Um, you know the last question I always have to ask it because I've asked it for all 60 odd podcasts very quickly Professor Colin if you could invite three people to your fictional party either dead or alive who would they be and why and I know you've now answered this question because this is your third or fourth time on our podcast so you're running out of people yeah. to invite them yeah. sure well you can't say the same people okay, I suppose you can but I prefer not yeah well, okay. I'm going to be thinking about this today because um, <laughs> you knew it was coming up <laughs> uh, I just <laughs> It's a slightly, um, uh, I suppose, sad note really. T- today is that my, my auntie in Derry called Bernadette died this morning. You know, oh, and, sorry. Um, but so a bit. But actually, I've been thinking about fa- thinking about family and Derry, my family in Derry t- today before doing this as well. And uh, like you know, my mother died in twenty ten. My father died in twenty fifteen. And thinking about. I'm sure we've all thought of self people who are not not with us. Like since I thought all the things, like the, the, my dad grew up just outside Derry, my ma grew up on you know Loma Road in Derry, and all the things um, I never asked them. You know, I think like a lot of us, we think things that we wish we had asked our parents. They died. They both died relatively young, and there's things I would love to ask them mm. and, and know about and it, and if I was having a dinner party in which dead people could be there I would want my parents 
to be there to talk to them in a bit more detail now as somebody myself who's over 50 mm-hmm. and has my own you know younger children and ask them things I never asked them and I suppose ultimately with both of them like we all feel in a way that um, I want to thank them for what they because I think when you get older and particularly when I've got older and I've got children of my own I realize now like I'm a very in a very privileged position but they want you know they weren't in a privileged position they were in a very very difficult position and the older that I've got I've realized what they sacrificed mm-hmm. for all of us mm-hmm. and the things that they did you know bearing in mind that we grew up in Derry in the 70s and 80s at the time there and Cairn Hall in Derry and you know houses didn't end these, these were difficult times and how much they sacrificed for us and I'd want to, 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 to thank them for that Mm-hmm. So I know that's a slightly uh, somber note for for your podcast at the end, but I think for the audience today, and I just say to anybody listening to this, you know, if you do have family who are around, if your parents are, ask them questions because yeah. people who grew up in this place in the past, you know, my parents grew up in a society where they to- were told and they were taught to believe that they were second class citizens in this place. And I wanted to speak to them and I should have spoken to them more about what their experiences were. So if you have people with you listening to this, please ask them those questions now because you'll regret it later. I'm kind of speechless in a good way after listening to that. And for me, if nothing else comes out of this one hour and 20 minutes of conversation, for me, I know what I'll certainly be thinking about on my journey home. That's a beautiful answer. Glenn, same question to you. Who would you invite to your fictional dinner party, either alive or dead? I, I think keeping on the theme of what Colin's saying, I would love to get my granda Jimmy, who, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was a trade unionist. Mm-hmm. All, worked all his days in McGlattery and uh, Parkview Brickworks up in, in West Belfast. And Che Guevara. Oh, okay. And just watch the conversation of that working class trade unionism from a, a unionist perspective engaging with this <laughs> socialist revolutionary who had just fought yes. you know and, and I would just love to to, to to witness that and just be a part of serving them. Another one I'm actually gonna do for people just but it's keeping in the vein of what Colin my granny Martha mm-hmm. she she passed in nineteen eighty seven when I was uh, nineteen or twenty years old. And my, my granny was the, the matriarch of our family, so everybody had been around in the house on a Friday night and she'd have made ribs and onions or she'd have made curry stew, as she called it, or a curry. Now, curry stew to me was just dairy stew we, with a thinful, to quote her, of curry. And I would love Mahatma Gandhi to be with her, just to try the food and give her yes. a, a sort of an opinion yes. on, you know, so uh-huh. keeping it later after Collins thing, you know, just, yeah, yeah. I would just love to have that and just witness that conversation as I, as I serve the food. Sit, sit back and listen and observe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to. So they would be the different ones from the, the, the last conversations mm-hmm. that we had, if, if I could. But yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I think it's um, a lovely way to end, to tell you the truth. Um, we can all go away and reflect slightly now. But guys, on a personal note from myself and the entire Shared Ireland team, once again, it's been an absolute honour, and I really mean that, for you two men to give us an hour and a half of your time um, to talk about all facets of Irish life and about our future and, you know, and about the things that maybe we all could do better. Um, so it's an absolute pleasure. If 
Professor Colin, um, I'm just going to leave you with the last note. Anything you would like to say? I well, just very much appreciate the chance to have this conversation with Glenn and yourself. Thank you very much. And Glenn? Just thanks for, thanks for the platform. Talking, you know, we've all been given two ears and one mouth. It's nice to listen. It's nice to have a conversation. And on that note, folks, uh, thank you for listening as always. And if you did enjoy, and even if you didn't enjoy it, we'd be very interested to hear your feedback on the thread underneath. Until next time, take care, be good, bye-bye.